And there you go. Good morning, everybody. I am Andrew Langer. Welcome to the show today, the Wednesday edition of my of my Facebook Lives. Uh, so much to talk about today. In fact, let me X out of this because otherwise this is going to just confuse the the heck out of me. Um, I want to I want to start here uh, because there's obviously there's a lot going on. We're going to talk about reconciliation. Uh, we're going to talk about the Rittenhouse trial a little bit and uh, what Joy Reid had to say. We're going to talk about uh, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and what she had to say about energy policy in America. Uh, and we're also going to talk about um, we're also going to talk uh, about um, well uh, other things as well uh, as I as I sort of I pull these things up. Um, but I want to I want to start here. Let's uh, let's share the screen and go over. Let's turn that on. Uh, and of course. I X'd out of it, so I got to turn my glasses back on. Um, oh, tell me I didn't just uh, uh, mess this up. Good lord, and I did. All right. Well, anyway, I got to got to now got to now find this. Uh, there we go. Let's uh, let's share this. Um, good lord, why am I? I'm sorry, guys. As I'm as I'm having these kinds of problems today. There we go. Uh, I want to start here with uh, with uh, with Glenn DeVries and let me maximize this and, and saying goodbye to a good friend. Um, so, uh, as you all know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I interviewed Glenn DeVries, who was one of the Blue Origin astronauts, the founder of a company called Metadata and a high school classmate of mine. Uh, if you were paying attention the last week, you know that uh, on Friday I found out that Glenn had died. I mean, it's, it's just it's insane. You know, you're talking to somebody uh, just a couple of weeks ago, re rekindling an old friendship and having a conversation that was truly inspiring, only to then turn around and have uh, him die in a plane crash, which is, it, it, it took me a while to wrap my head around this. Uh, thankfully, I've had a couple of conversations with some mutual friends, um, including one person who shared with me some uh, thoughts about, uh, about uh, that Glenn had shared with him about the interview that we did. Uh, which which gave me a great deal of comfort, I will say that, uh, to say the least. But I want to take this opportunity to replay just a little snippet of what Glenn had to say. I'd asked Glenn uh, about uh, about longevity and and about uh, uh, people living to older ages, and uh, Glenn's answer was one of the best parts of the uh, of the interview. Here's what he had to say. Think about it this way, um, again, simple math. But I, I, I actually went and looked like uh, we're close enough in age. We can both use this rounding um, yes. to, to, to decent fractions. There are twice as many people on Earth now as there were when you and I were born. Wow. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I, I don't I mean this in a biological way, not a political way. At the end of the day. We we are a colony organism, you know. I, I don't I don't think I don't think you know uh, termites wake up and go, um, wow, it's great to be part of this colony. They wake up and they say, hey, I'm going to go off to my job moving sand, right? And like <laughs> and, and and so there is I, I think this kind of greater humanity. Um, you know, I think if we we're writing a science fiction book, we call it like the light of humankind. Yeah, there's a thing that we are all part of, and and we have to think about keeping that in an environment where we're we're healthy and happy again not in a political way i'll no, just no. Tell you, when you look at earth from space you know that really visceral sense of the yeah. word home like you feel that sure. and it, it looks small and fragile in a way that we need to turn you know as much of it into a game preserve as possible 
And let me end it there. And 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 so you know, it's funny because that was that was a lot of what I talked about with some of the other people. This idea of togetherness and interconnectedness. Whoops, hello. Let me stop that. Interconnectedness and and how and how important all that is. So um, uh, so safe home, Glenn. Uh, this is uh, it, it really is a, a tragic uh, a tragic loss. And I and I don't mean this in a hyperbolic way. Uh, Glenn DeVries was someone who was really shaking the world and and using his intellect and his intellectual prowess to make positive change. Now, again, you know, we could disagree about politics and we could disagree about some of the methods and we probably do. Um, but but you, you can't help but experience and recognize that the world lost a light, uh, someone who was living his life for good. Uh, and someone who would come to an even greater understanding based upon uh, this experience that he'd had. So safe home, uh, Glenn DeVries. And, um, you know, anyway, so so uh, moving moving on from there, because there's lots. Of, and actually, it's funny because I'll come back to something that I think Glenn would have an anniversary that Glenn would have appreciated uh, towards the end of the show. This is, by the way, this is not going to be all doom and gloom today um, because I've got uh, I've got a couple of things to talk about towards the end. Uh, of the show i want to reiterate some things that are happening next week so that you're well aware of them um but i i wanted to start the show by talking about that obviously there are other things that are going on uh, in the world uh right now of course um the 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 two biggest things that are looming are the kyle rittenhouse trial uh and the fact that the jury is out um and and then of course the reconciliation issue and and i want to start with reconciliation we'll wind our way back to uh the rittenhouse trial uh because Lord knows by the time many of you watch this, uh, the verdict may may already be in or a mistrial may have been declared. So um, we'll, we'll set that aside for a moment. Um, but this reconciliation bill, uh, it, they are at least talking about moving it. So we had the infrastructure bill that passed. Um, it, 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 has, it, it has been signed. Uh, it is moving uh, into effect. Uh, some folks saying that it's making then Pete Buttigieg uh, one of the most, certainly one of the most powerful transportation secretaries ever, which is a scary concept to think about. Um, but also, uh, you know, there, there's then this, this idea, right, let's take a step back. As negotiations were happening, one of the issues was being, that was being discussed, you will remember that the Biden administration and Democratic leaders wanted the two bills, the reconciliation bill, the spending bill, the budget bill, and the infrastructure bill uh, tied together. Uh, knowing full well that they had greater support for the infrastructure bill uh, than they do for this reconciliation bill, largely because it is so massive uh, and and so chock-a-block full of Democratic gimmies uh, that it was it was not nearly as popular. Um, the congressional midterms, obviously, uh, uh, not the midterms. I'm sorry, the Virginia and New Jersey gubernatorial races obviously shook up you know, that to a great degree. I and mean, obviously we were moving towards that end or, or before these, these events. Uh, but certainly uh, it, the, the, the Virginia and Democratic governor's races and the local races and, the, you know, the sentiment of America moving into those, those uh, uh, elections um, made it really clear that the Democrats are left with no other choice. We're left with no other choice than to decouple uh, these two bills. Uh, but nevertheless, there was this agreement, right? You, you, we will, we will sever the two bills, um, and, uh, you know, under this understanding that we will pass the infrastructure bill, uh, and then 
there were technically um, deals that were cut between uh, the the sort of moderate centrist Democrats and leadership uh, over this. Central to this issue is whether or not um, it the, the the this will be a a deficit a debt buster and the two are different things right the debt and the deficit are two different things um, but whether or not it will add appreciably to the debt over time and it's interesting because back in September and I remember seeing this seeing this this weird talking point coming out of Democratic circles which is that this reconciliation bill will cost nothing or the Biden agenda will cost zero dollars right the president himself said this and then I watched as a member of Congress that I've known since childhood who's facing a uh, going to be facing a tough uh, a tough primary fight and then a tough reelect um, uh, also reiterated this crazy idea that you can spend trillions of dollars in this way uh, in this spending but more than we've ever spent and not add to the deficit or and 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 it will cost us nothing is in fact what they said. I, I want to go here. This is from Politifact. I know you take it with a with a with a grain of salt, obviously because it is Politifact. Uh, but let's uh, let's go here. So here is uh, here is uh, uh, Politifact. Can Joe Biden's agenda really cost zero dollars? A guide to the bills and the numbers, and then they talk about this. Uh, and, and key to all of this, right? really clear about this um um so you have the uh the the build back better act um there are no firm numbers and so so what we're talking about here is that we have we, we have a situation in which we do not have final numbers from the congressional budget office now this is a massive bill right and numbers are changing all the time but the bill in what is essentially its final form is in front of the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan entity, right? They're the ones who score these things. And and frankly, conservatives have always thought that CBO scores things uh, much too conservatively, that invariably CBO's numbers are way too low. But set that aside for a minute. Even CBO, at least as clear as what we're seeing, is planning is is saying that the uh, the the infrastructure bill will add about two hundred and fifty billion dollars to the debt. Um, and then, of course, they're saying the Build Back Better Act could add zero to the national debt if it balances new spending with new revenues. Well, here's the reality, right? The problem with the CBO is that traditionally they have scored things statically, right? If you if you if you if you take X here and you add it to Y there, if you tax people at X there, it you know you can you can edit the Y and it'll 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 even out. But as you know. Right. I haven't. Let me stop this. As you know, I, I've talked about this. I think I talked about this as, as recently as last week. An economy is an organism. This is a basic philosophy of mine. Um, and that organism responds to both stimulants and it responds to depressants. Uh, but the point is that it responds and it changes and it changes the behavior within that organism. And so you cannot simply say, if we're going to do this, if you're going to measure something on, right, if you move, you know, to use Glenda Vries's analogy, take it in a different direction, right? It's not as simple as taking a scoop of termites from one side and dumping it on the other. And I apologize, this is my daughter uh, uh, coming home from school. Um, that's why my dog's barking. 
uh, it, it, you know, adding one scoop of termites from one side to the other, and and that's it. That it, it, no, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. In fact, um, to use Grover Norquist's analogy, right, of moving, um, you know, looking at an economy like a pond, and and if you scoop water from one side and you walk it around to the other side and you dump it in, you haven't actually added to the economy. The problem, of course, is this is basic uh, uh, environmental regulation. The way they look at things, the way they used to look at the Clean Water Act, right? Invariably, uh, if you if you scooped from a waterway and you dumped it in at another point in the waterway, one of the great fears was you were at you were taking pollutants or or silt or sediment or whatever, and you were dumping it in over here, and that was creating problems. It was called the incidental fallback rule. Not that you need to know that right now. Uh, the, the The point is that that taxes especially and depending on on how you go about taxing individuals right and we know that it's not just taxing the wealthy we know that the way you change things here uh, is that it is that it taxes uh it it, it the, the taxes change people and they change their behavior so uh so you um, you, you cannot score things on a static basis. This is what I'm saying. And we know this. We know this from past experience. We know, for instance, that when that there were all of these projections when they taxed tobacco sales uh, in order to fund all sorts of things, healthcare, what have you, we know that the, the revenues never equaled what, uh, what, uh, what they were projecting. And part of it was design, right? And, you know, one of the great failures, you know, it, it's the idea of if you tax something, you get less of it, which is a, a fairly straightforward axiom, right? If you're taxing tobacco products in order to get, um, in order to get, it, it, A, to get revenue, but also B, to discourage people from smoking, well, then fewer people are going to smoke. And that means you're going to get lower revenues. It's, it's, it's just that simple. It, it changes over time. So the same thing happens depending on what you're taxing in these other areas. You know, if you're taxing uh, uh, corporations, uh, that's going to change corporate behavior. If you're taxing wealthy people, it's going to change their behavior, right? And the only people who can change their behavior are the folks who can't hire fancy accountants uh, to uh, uh, gin the tax code in their in their favor. So the point is that. Um, that the CBO score on the reconciliation bill uh, is going to come out and it is going to change the number of Democrats who are going to vote for this bill. Uh, the bill is supposed to be voted on. They're hoping over the weekend they want people to be able to go back to their districts for Thanksgiving. Here's the reality. Um, I, I think it is going to pass by a nose in the House. I, I don't think there's any way that this thing is going get, to get passed in the Senate um uh, not without not without changes so i mean so you know that's that's where we are i i i don't you know this is all really what we're what we're talking about is is essentially the, the biden administration's agenda is is largely dead on arrival um you know and one would have hoped right one would have hoped that nancy pelosi and the president uh would have taken a look at the numbers and said that uh, okay, we need to we need to massively change these things. But we saw this the day after the election. Nancy Pelosi was asked, uh, "What are you going to do uh, about this? What are you you know are you going to are you going to change the agenda 
uh, in order to uh, in order to satisfy. I'm sorry, as I'm silencing my phone. Are, are you going to change your agenda uh, because of what the polls are saying and because of what happened in Virginia and New Jersey? And she said, no. What they are doing. <laughs> let me let me shift gears here. Uh, what they are doing, interestingly enough, is it seems like they are shifting the blame for all of this uh, to the vice president's office. Right. The only person who's doing worse uh, than Joe Biden. And I think by Congress, I don't know, I haven't looked. Um, the only person who seems to be doing worse than than both is uh, the vice president of the United States. Um, and and to the point, um, uh, to the point in the end, let me let me let me share this uh, to the point where there are rumors going around that she's not going to she's not going to be here. We'll get to that in, in a second. Uh, here is um, this is from the Daily Wire. This is uh, this is Ben Johnson at the Daily Wire is uh, Vice President Harris being set up to fail uh msnbc host well you can read this blames uh, biden for harris's tanking polls um and then they talk about her 28 approval rating um and joy reed and we're going to play some of joy reed's gems in a couple of minutes um you know uh, she she asked is is uh, kamala harris being um uh, uh being uh, uh set up to fail um, and it's funny because you have this situation. Let me actually, before we get here, we go here. Um, I think I can do this. Here is, uh, here is Jen Psaki, the, um, uh, the White House spokeswoman who said this, uh, over, what was it? Was it, uh, over the weekend? Yeah, it was over, it was Sunday. <laughs> For anyone who needs to hear it, uh, uh, at vice president uh, is not only a vital partner to POTUS, uh, but a bold leader who has taken on key important challenges facing the country, uh, from voting rights to addressing root causes of migration to expanding broadband. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on, let me stop this share for a second. Um, <laughs> first of all, the Babylon Bee, I'll pull up the Babylon Bee uh, in a moment. Um, this was entirely unsolicited. And to me, right, and, I, and to a lot of folks who watch this, uh, these sorts of things happening, if the White House felt compelled to tweet this out uh that means that that kamala harris is in real trouble and obviously there are these the, the rumors that are floating around about her relationship with the president whether or not she feels sidelined and obviously this is what part of what joy reed was uh was uh, uh commenting on but i'm sorry um first of all the vice president has done virtually nothing uh, on the broadband expansion issue i i, I mean this is this is an issue that that stakeholders have been involved in for years and again not to have the debate over municipal broadband and the role of government in expanding broadband access and the problems that ensue when government gets its uh, 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 you know sticks its fingers uh, into this issue um but but the reality is that it, it, the government role in expanding broadband has been an issue long before Kamala Harris was even attorney general of the state of California, certainly before she became a senator and certainly before she became vice president of the United States. Um, and it was those stakeholders who got the broadband expansion portions into uh, into the uh, into the, the infrastructure bill. Uh, so so first of all, that's just that's that's just a lie. Um, now, on the issue of of addressing root causes of migration what i mean that is a weird way of talking about 
the vice president's complete and utter inaction and failure in dealing with the border crisis, right? Remember, this was supposed to be her baby. And we have numbers. The numbers are still extraordinarily bad in terms of illegal migration. Sure, she made a visit to other countries, but there has not been step one raised on this. And on the voting rights issue, I mean, who 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 knows what Jen Psaki is referring to here? You know, it's it, it, again, unless unless Kamala Harris is somehow uh, dealing with the Justice Department on this in ways that the White House shouldn't be interfering with the Justice Department on, um, then I'm not I'm not sure uh, what that has to do with. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let me pull up this uh, this. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, you gotta love the uh, the Babylon B. Um, the here's the here's the uh, here's the Babylon B. And what they had to uh, what they had to say about this. Uh, Kamala Harris is extremely likable and good at her job. Announced to Saki for no apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> oh, this is good. Uh, uh, this is their fake quote, right? Let's be really clear about this. Uh, quote: I am proud to announce to you today that Vice President Harris is not unlikable in any way. Uh, she is also not terrible at her job. That's all I really came here to say. She also has a great relationship with President Biden. Oh, they laugh and talk for hours. The most unpopular vice president since Dick Cheney, who I, I, I guess has been kind of resurrected in people's minds uh, now that the whole, uh, the, the, the teams in Washington shifted. Yeah, by the way, those are Frog and Toter Friends t-shirts that are, that are up on here. Um, and, I, and I bring this up as a segue into, uh, into something that, that I've talked about a little bit and that Breitbart has talked about. I, and, and I, and I want to say that I take this with a, with a whole grain of salt here. Let's, let's go here to this, this Breitbart piece. This is something that's floating around in, in DC. Uh, Fox News reporter Chad Pergram reveals cryptic email advising him to learn process for Congress replacing the vice president, which I, I'm not sure what the, what the great mystery is here. Um, so, so uh, Chad Pergram, uh, Fox News congressional correspondent, was on Brett Baer's uh, all-star panel, and he, he let people quote in a little secret that a mysterious email he received several weeks ago from an insider source suggesting that America could be in for a replacement vice president on the horizon. Uh, he said, uh, just to let uh, you guys in on a little secret here, I was told about two to three weeks ago, maybe this pertains to the Supreme Court, maybe this pertains to changing the ticket before you get into 2024. Uh, FDR seemingly burned through a vice president almost every time he was up for office. Um, but I got an email from somebody who really knows this place very well, uh, who told Chad to, to start familiarizing himself with the confirmation process, uh, not just in the Senate, but the House for vice president. And this is really, all right, so let me start here. I take, I take what Breitbart writes in this with a, with a massive grain of salt. A massive grain of salt, and this is not me casting aspersions on Breitbart. Um, and, and you know, and, yeah, they're just reporting on what Chad Pergram had to say. Uh, I, I, I can't, I can't vouch for Chad Pergram. I can't vouch for Fox News. I will say this much: it was a couple of weeks ago. In the last few weeks, I've been talking to folks about 2024. I uh, just had a conversation with somebody over the weekend about 2024 and who's going to run. Um, and I would be honestly surprised if Joe Biden is the Democrats nominee. Um, and I, and, and, 
as an entree into this, actually, let me go to the other part of this, because I, let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump. I think if Joe Biden does not run for re-election, Donald Trump does not run for re-election. Um, I, I think, I, I think that, you know, the, the, with Joe Biden on the ticket, Donald Trump might feel that he has something to prove. Uh, I think if it's, if it's Joe Biden, if I'm sorry, if Joe Biden's not there, then that impetus goes away and Donald Trump can play Kingmaker. Um, made a bet with somebody to, to sort of that effect over, over the weekend, by the way. Um, so I, I, I think that the, the two go hand in hand. Um, with also the caveat that it is 2021, we are two full years away from, right? Because as soon as the, the midterm elections, I guess we're a year away. As soon as the midterm elections happen next year, we'll have a better understanding. I want to talk about that in a second because that does have an impact on this. Um, but but then there's the issue of, of Harris. Were Joe Biden to not run for president and Kamala Harris were still the vice president of the United States, it would be very hard to have Kamala Harris not be the, 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 uh, the designated nominee, um, the assumed nominee for all of this. Uh, and so, uh, and that would be a disaster. I think everybody agrees that Kamala Harris would be a disaster um, in 2024 against any Republican. Um, you're saying this without knowing what's going to happen in the 2022 midterms. So what happens? So, and I am, I am guided by what I have been saying is that, um, that, 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 uh, that they have to pull a, they essentially have to have to pull a, a, a Ted Agnew on Kamala Harris. They need to find some way of getting her to resign. Sorry, guys, my puppy is is not feeling well, so he wants to he wants to join us today. Um, so, you know, and I, but with that in mind, I had I'd actually pulled up. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Spiro Agnew was the vice president of the United States under Richard Nixon. And, um, you know, before a lot of folks don't remember, I, mean, I know all my listeners do, all my, all my viewers do, uh, remember that, that uh, Spiro Agnew, who was the former governor of Maryland, uh, in fact, before Bob Ehrlich was the, uh, was the only previous Republican governor uh, of Maryland in, in years, um, Spiro Agnew had been selected uh, to join Nixon on the Republican ticket. Uh, and then, uh, and then in nineteen what uh, nineteen seventy three, uh, he had to resign. Here is uh, here is uh, Vice President Spiriti, or, or also known as Ted Agnew, uh, talking about his resigning from office. While I'm fully aware that the plea of nolo contendere was the equivalent of a plea of guilty for the purpose of that negotiated proceeding in Baltimore, it does not represent a confession of any guilt, whatever, for any other purpose. I made the plea because it was the only way to quickly resolve the situation. In this technological age, image becomes dominant. Appearance supersedes reality. An appearance of wrongdoing, whether true in or false in fact, is damaging to any man. But more important, it is fatal to a man who must be ready at any moment to step into the presidency. If the American people deserve to have a vice president who commands their unimpaired confidence and implicit trust. 
for more than two months now, you have not had such a vice president. Well, there you go. And and that's uh, that was that was Vice President Agnew uh, talking about his his resignation there. And of course, I just turned it on. Um, listen, I don't think they're going to they're going to find some charge against Kamala Harris. Um, but nevertheless, you had to uh, essentially I, I, I think people inside knew that that uh, that uh, uh, no one was going to tolerate uh, Spiro T. Agnew as vice president of the United States. Uh, especially in light of the possibility that Richard Nixon might have to resign or, you know, he was going to be impeached or whatever. So, uh, so I could see happening uh, a scenario in which uh, Kamala Harris is so unpopular that some scandal does break. Apparently she's very strange. At least that's the, uh, that's the going discussion around, uh, uh, around the water coolers in Washington, DC. Uh, a situation in which she does have to resign, um, and 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 that will pave the way, right? And so, what? Listen, it's really straightforward. What happens? Uh, the president nominates somebody else to be vice president of the United States. Uh, that person has to be approved by both the the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, I don't know how the partisanship in D.C. will shake out. You know, keeping in mind that Gerald Ford, uh, and I don't remember with with Nelson Rockefeller what his numbers were, but but Gerald Ford was overwhelmingly approved by both houses of Congress. Um, some of it had to do with the fact that he was regarded as a House Minority Leader when he was nominated uh, to be the Vice President of the United States. He was regarded as a congressman's congressman. Uh, you know, you don't think about this. Uh, given um, uh, Ford's historic reputation for ineptitude, but uh, but he was a a fairly you know moderate uh, Republican congressman who was regarded as competent for the work that he was doing in Congress. So anyway, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, it, it obviously you know Katie barred the door. Um, I, I still think that the the top tier Republican candidates going oh. Actually, before I get to top tier Republican candidates, I don't even know if I need to watch this. It's not a wild card, uh, but it is a a major issue here, um, which is how the the 2022 midterms are going to play into this. And everybody's talking about this, but there's a real test that is at work here. And yes, right over here is my is my puppy. He's sitting on on my desk here. So. What we saw in Virginia, again, it's part of a conversation I had over the weekend with somebody. Um, what we saw in Virginia with the Glenn Youngkin election was a very interesting path. And I want to I want to distinguish this from Governor Hogan in Maryland. Right. So. You know, Glenn Youngkin ran as a conservative and he ran on kitchen table issues. He ran a, as a true conservative. Larry Hogan ran as a moderate conservative, as a conservative that would appeal to conservative Democrat and independent voters. And yeah, he focused on sort of fiscal issues, but then also became uh, an ardent never Trumper when he ran. Glenn Youngkin, on the other hand, never ran as a never Trumper. He ran as a conservative, but he ran on the issues themselves. And so the question then becomes, right, what happens in, in 2022, because, you know, and I've, I've done that, uh, that show squared off, I'm going to do it again uh, uh, Thanksgiving week. You know, the question is whether or not the party is, is the Republican Party has or can move beyond Donald Trump. Um, 
And I think that the Glenn Youngkin race shows how you can be a conservative and run with the support of Trump, but not run as a Trump candidate. Uh, and I say this right now without knowing what the never Trump Republicans did as a voting block, but you certainly saw this with the independents, which is vitally important. And so what you're going to see in 2022 is you're going to see full-throated, red hat wearing MAGA, and I'm not casting aspersions on anybody. I want to be really clear about that. You're going to see full-throated, red hat wearing MAGA Republicans uh, running with the full endorsement and, and activity of Donald Trump. You are going to see candidates in the mold of Glenn Youngkin running, uh, folks who are conservative, uh, who would would and can be supported by uh, by red hat wearing MAGA Trump supporting voters, uh, and you're going to have never Trump Republicans. And depending on how those candidates do, uh, that will that will demonstrate to uh, um, I think the primary field and political watchers what kind of a candidate the electorate is going to tolerate in uh, 2024, um, right? You know, I mean, keep in mind, and this is, this is not rocket science here. We know that elections are a snapshot of how an electorate feels, a populace feels about things on election day. So we know how the populace felt. We know how the populace felt on election day 2016. We know how the populace felt in a very real way on election day 2020. Uh, and we know how uh, how the populace felt on election day 2021. Um, this will give us a, a, a better indication in, in the very real form in terms of what human behavior, right? It's it's like this, you know, I, I've said it, I was just talking about, about economies as organisms. Uh, there are also exercises in mass, uh, mass psychology. And, and so you, you sort of, you see the mindset, you know, what people are thinking and how, and how what's going on in the world dictates their behavior. We're going to see that and get a better indication as to where the world is going in 2022. That's, uh, that's uh, uh, just that simple. Um, by the way, I want to say this because I'm going to try to get him on uh, in the next few weeks, probably not next week when I'm in for Derek Hunter, more on that at the end. Um, um, uh, congratulations to my good friend. Uh, and former now radio host uh, Mike Coolidge, who's running for Congress in uh, in Illinois, uh, not against uh, Congressman Sean Caston, Interestingly enough, um, want to go here. Uh, oh, 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 oh! Speaking of uh, of uh, oh, you know something? Before I get to AOC and what AOC had to say, uh, I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about Kyle Rittenhouse um, and the Rittenhouse trial, which, as I said. Um, we could be getting, in fact, there could be a verdict right now, and I just don't know it because I'm on the air right now, um, or, or the declaration of a, of a mistrial in Kyle Rittenhouse's case. Uh, obviously, this trial has underscored the divisions in America um, and really perpetuated the, 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 the false binary choice that, that some folks thrive on proffering to people. What do I mean by this? It's the, there's a meme that's out there. Um, you know, do you prefer an apple to an orange? And if someone says apple, uh, then the, the meme goes on to say, oh, well, why do you hate oranges? You know, what did oranges ever do to you? You're, you must be, uh, uh, ant, you know, you must be uh, anti or It's a whole thing, right, about this. And obviously the, the, the object lesson is that there are nuances. Right, you prefer an apple to an orange. It doesn't mean you hate oranges. Uh, with Kyle Rittenhouse, it's the same thing. 
right? You can believe that Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty, not guilty of everything, uh, and still believe that he shouldn't have been walking the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, um, or they shouldn't have been walking the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin with an AK-47 or an Air-15, I'm sorry. It was, a, it was a, an Air-15. Um, but, the, but the point is, you know, it, there, there are all kinds of, of spaces between I believe he's guilty, I believe he's not guilty, uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, the, this idea of, of, you know, if you believe he's not guilty, therefore, uh, he's a white supremacist, therefore, you must be a white supremacist. I want to I want to share this. And again, this is part of what's wrong with the world. Um, because here you have uh, Joy Reid, again, someone who's got up got a well, she's on MSNBC. So so take that take that what you will. Um, and and proffering proffering the the same kind of misinformation, you know, the old chestnuts, as I said earlier, uh, about uh, about uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, in talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. Here is what uh, Joy Reid had to say. It's Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It reminded a lot of people of something, something I just can't remember what it was. Oh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings in which Brett Kavanaugh, who had been accused by a high school friend of committing sexual abuse of her, cried his way through the hearings to make him a permanent member. All right. Let's remember that this came completely out of left field. You're Brett Kavanaugh, right? And you've lived a professional career. I've said this, I said this while I was on the air uh, during the hearings. I've been, in, I've been involved in politics and policy in D.C. for 25 years, as you all know. I've known a lot of people who have served in government, a lot of folks who've gone on to do extraordinary things with their careers um, and worked with other people who worked with people who've gone to do extraordinary things in their careers. I'll give you a, a, a prime example is Ted Cruz. Uh, I knew Ted Cruz long before Ted Cruz became Ted Cruz. Um, and when Ted Cruz ran for Senate and then was running for president, I mean, there were people who came out of the woodwork and talked about the fact that when they worked with Ted Cruz in Washington, D.C., they didn't like him. And my my point is, now, I, I like Ted Cruz. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz and I always had very good interactions, but people who I was I, I am good friends with worked with Ted Cruz at the White House had nothing but bad things to say about Ted Cruz. Again, not my experience, but the experience of others. People who actually, whose who's, uh, who's, uh, judgment I trust very much. Brett Kavanaugh, when he was nominated, is the only person I've ever heard of who has had a career in DC policy and DC law who has not made a single enemy. Nobody from his professional and legal circles had a negative thing to say about Brett Kavanaugh. That is an impossibility. And it's an impossibility, especially, you know, in the, in the 21st century, you know, as people got more hyper-partisan, the idea that, that Brett Kavanaugh uh, could go down this road and have this career and not make any enemies and not have anybody from that professional or political world to come out and say bad things about him. No, you get this person who shows up out of nowhere, out of the blue, you know, and certainly never during any of the, the previous uh, uh, circumstances or situations where Brett Kavanaugh was having his uh, professional career under scrutiny. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't begrudge Brett Kavanaugh 
for, for getting a little upset, you know, either angry or getting tearful on the stand. And to have Joy Reid sit there and, and cast aspersions on him, again, raising what has been essentially a debunked story. But but right, but but for the left, there is no there is no forgiveness. There is no uh, uh, recognition that what they said possibly might have been an error. I'm going to take this back just a little bit. Use of her cried his way through the hearings to make him a permanent member and associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. So wait a minute. So. He showed a human side of himself when confronted with an horrific charge from years ago that got half of America spun up because of people like Joy Reid. God forbid he had a human reaction to this outlandish accusation. And his tears turned out to be more powerful than the tears of Christine Blasey Ford. Well, okay, let's remember that Christine Blasey's, Blasey Ford's story fell apart almost immediately. Which were the tears of an alleged victim. But in America, there's a thing about both white vigilantism and white tears, particularly male white tears. Mm, God, male white tears. Really white tears in general, because that's what Karen's are, right? Yeah. They Karen out, and then as soon as they get caught, it's like, <laughs> waterworks. White men can get away with that too. And it has the same effect, even as the right tries to politicize the idea that masculinity is being robbed from American men by multiculturalism and wokeism. They still want to be able to have their tears. So my friend Jahan Jones, who writes the brilliant The Readout blog, wrote a great piece about this. And if you want to read it. All right, well, I'm not going to. Well, there you go. It's already it's already up there. The, re, the Readout blog. Um, uh, yeah. So there we go. Right here. So, so yeah, so, so Joy Reid uh, uh, essentially, essentially says that, you know, uh, white men can't cry, not allowed to cry uh, on, uh, you know, as though, again, equating two vastly different circumstances. Kyle Rittenhouse is, is an adolescent. Should he have been there patrolling with a gun? No, he should not. Um, should he have should he be uh, uh found guilty after defending himself absolutely not it's a an horrific situation and 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 let's not forget that there are rioters getting ready to riot in kenosha which is going to have an impact on this trial right now anyway that's uh that's what uh what joy reed had to say again it's a, it's a it's a different world speaking of different worlds because uh, we're we're coming, we've got we've got things that I want to talk about. You know, um, I do. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about uh, uh, something that uh, um, we've we've talked about energy prices. We've talked about inflation. Uh, here's someone who clearly doesn't understand what's going on in the world. Here is uh, here is uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, she uh, she's talking about uh, uh, oil and natural gas and 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 uh, and pipelines, not understanding how an energy economy works. Uh, here is uh, here is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, of course, we're gonna have a commercial, and it's perspective. I hate this, and I can't mute it either. 
Let me turn that down. Because <laughs> we got 15 seconds here. Here is here is the fascinating thing to me. Um, there is a disconnect in this world between what uh, the left, you know, the left says about about working families and the working poor in America, um, and and wanting to help these working families and working for or working for working poor and the policies that they create. Um, it's it's funny because we have the president of the United States, President Biden, uh, coming into office and shutting down uh, energy pipelines in America, both oil and natural gas pipelines, shutting down the ability to drill for carbon-based energy uh, here in the United States, while at the same time lowering sanctions on our uh, on on entities like Russia, right? I thought Russia was our enemy. Uh, at least there were several successive elections in which that was discussed. Um, and essentially allowing Russia and OPEC to start dictating carbon-based energy prices abroad. Uh, now enters uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, talking about um, uh, uh, various pipelines and butchering the subject. I'm sorry about that. Let's, let's, uh, let's go here. was actively brought up by activists and grassroots organizers that were uh, in the room with some of these meetings and discussions. So I want you all to know that line three was brought up directly to members of Congress from the very top to the you know very bottom. And uh, I am very much in support of stopping line three. And frankly, a lot of line, th not from line three to Keystone Pipeline to all of this, it has to do with um, a lot of this has to do with the decision that Congress made not too long ago, relatively, to allow the United States to be an exporter of natural gas. All right, now, okay, so so this is this is so many things that she gets wrong in, in all of this. First of all, the United States should be an exporter of energy. But remember, the, the Keystone XL and, and this other pipeline she's talking about, they were pipelines that, that carry crude oil, not liquefied natural gas, but crude oil uh, from Canada into the United States uh, for both use as, as oil and also to be refined into other products. Um, and you want that to happen. You, you want, first of all, you want the U.S. to get oil from um, uh, stable political entities that are close by. Uh, and you want that oil to be transported to the United States uh, in the safest manner possible. And the reality is that pipelines are the safest way to transport both oil and natural gas. Safer than trucks, safer than trains, they pollute less, uh, they have less impact on the environment generally, uh, and they operate with much, much greater safety. That's just the way it is. Given the fact that they are <laughs> essentially, it's one pipe, and it's constantly working and you don't have to worry about manpower. You don't have to worry about internal combustion engines. You don't have to worry about the, they're being derailed. Yeah. You have to worry about leaks, but you can, you can, you can hedge for that. Um, and so there, there's that aspect of it. Then there's the other part of it, which let's assume for a moment that it was, uh, that first of all, that it was natural gas that was being piped. Well, if you are a, a, a progressive, I had always been under the impression that 
uh, we were supposed to prefer the use of natural gas in energy production to oil products because it is cleaner, relatively speaking. Um, and so, you know, you, you have this, whether or not it is, um, you know, natural gas that's used in transportation as opposed to petroleum distillates uh, or actually burned either as diesel or fuel oil in, uh, in, uh, in some kind of a, a power generation, right? We were supposed to prefer this. Then I don't understand what the problem is with the United States being a net exporter of energy. Certainly what we shouldn't be is a net importer of energy. We should, if we are able to be energy independent, um, uh, we should we 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 should be right. That that's that's a, a a good thing, right? It creates jobs here in America. Uh, it 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 helps it helps working families in America. Frankly, it helps unions in America, which I thought was a a big deal. It's also part of the reason why unions have always been uh, a little agnostic when it comes to the Biden agenda. Here, let's let's see a little bit more about what uh, uh, AOC had to say. Because when you look at Keystone XL and when you look at a lot of these other pipelines, people say, oh, this is for energy, you know, independence in the United States. We actually already produce enough to power our own country, uh, whether you agree with it or not. That is that's just what it is. A lot of these pipelines are being built so that the United States can export and sell natural gas oh, abroad. Oh, oh my God, God forbid that we actually sell things abroad in a global economy. I mean, they, you know, you talk about this, we talk about this concept of the left not being about America first, uh, or, you know, and, and putting other nations ahead of us. I mean, this is a prime example of this. We're, we're, not, we're not supposed to be in favor of America exporting products? What? That's insane. I mean, oh God. Anyway, I, you know, it's funny. I was going to play a, a, a thing from South Park. I really don't have a chance to today. And, um, you know, people make geopolitical arguments as to why that should be the case. You know, that aside, I think, you know, whether we actually, actually 100% need, I, you know, I believe line three should not exist. Well, um, and I think I just want you all to know that, um, we need to continue that activism and that folks are amplifying those voices on the inside. You don't you don't rely entirely on electoral politics to solve all of our problems, but also you don't not at the same time uh, because the influences of governments, mass media, et cetera, are way too large to ignore. Well, sure. Elections matter. That's what she's saying. Uh, elections matter. Therefore, we need to uh, you, you you need to get involved in this. I, I had a whole, as I said, I was going to play something with uh, with, with South Park. Um, you know, real quick, just because this is a bizarre story, and I and I want to bring it up. You know, it, actually, this is good. Actually, dovetails nicely because you know you talk about you talk about um, uh, um, the exporting of energy. You talk about the geopolitics of it. You talk about putting America first. Uh, we talk about this back and forth uh, with China. You know, because there's the Russia on the one hand as a uh, as a competitor abroad and as a threat. A couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about the Jones Act. Uh, I also talked about about China and the threat from China. Uh, here is reason number uh, you know a thousand and twenty five uh, as to why uh, as to why we shouldn't uh, trust China. Uh, this is a this is a bizarre story here. 
Well, right now, there is a big story surrounding two-time major doubles winner Peng Shuai. The former world number one in doubles accused a former high-ranking Chinese government official of sexual assault in a post from her Weibo account, which is like Twitter in China. Since then, there have been reports of Peng Shuai missing, and many tennis players have posted on social media concerned about her well-being. The WTA issued a statement today saying, quote, the recent events in China concerning a WTA player, Peng Shuai, are of deep concern. As an organization dedicated to women, we remain committed to the principles we were founded on, equality, opportunity, and respect. Peng Shuai and all women deserve to be heard, not censored. Her accusation about the conduct of a former Chinese leader involving a sexual assault must be treated with the utmost seriousness. In all societies, the behavior she alleges that took place needs to be investigated, not condoned or ignored. We commend Peng Shuang. Right, well, there, there, I want to stop that there. So, again, a reminder, China's not a good place. Absolutely not. Uh, and this, this situation, I mean, listen, we all know what happened, right? She spoke out. She wrote this blog piece. She posted it to her Weibo account. And then she disappeared, which is what they do in China. And, and keep in mind, right, we talk about China as a repressive society. Interesting. Um, because we could go back and pull up what Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, someone who was a critic of Donald Trump, Robert Gates said some very nice things about Trump, especially with regards to the mistakes that America had made uh, towards China, uh, you know, in terms, of, in terms of our foreign policy. Namely, we all operated, and I'm going to include myself in this, operated under the misimpression that when you trade with somebody uh, and when you work to help make a society more prosperous, that the more prosperous a society can be, the more freedom within that society there is. And we got shades that maybe this wasn't quite the case with other nations. I, I'm thinking Singapore for one. But China has managed to build a society in which there are Lots of different stratifications, even with a communist system. And what do they do? What are they based on? Well, now, in part, they want to base it on this social crediting system. And your privileges within society, and frankly, your rights and how government protects your rights, which they don't do, uh, are based upon how you score within this social crediting system. And there are people who want to see that implemented here in the United States. Um. Also want to commend you to this. Uh, um, let me pull this up here. Uh, had a uh, had a great epiphany. Not an epiphany. I want to make this recommendation here. Uh, found a comedian over the weekend that I uh, that uh, we fell in love with. We're going to try to get him. We put in an invitation for him to join me uh, either in a pre-record or on WCBM next week. Uh, his name is Jose Sardui. Uh, let me give you just a couple of seconds of uh, Jose Sardui here. I left Miami when I turned 18 and I joined the Air Force. Uh, I'm a 19-year veteran of the United States Air Force. That's what I do. But I'm not doing this. I say I'm a veteran because I used to tell audiences I'm an Air Force pilot, which I am, and that confused every They're like, they let the Cubans fly the plane? Shouldn't he be in the Coast Guard? You don't want Cubans in the Coast Guard. That's, that's like Mexicans in the Border Patrol. I don't think that's a good. Anyway, you, you, you see, I, I think I think he is uh, I think he's absolutely uh, absolutely brilliant. 
I uh, love the stand-up that we did. He's got a stand-up on some uh, a platform called Drybar, D-R-Y-B-A-R, Drybar Comedy, which I think is comedy where the comedians don't work blue. Um, but he, t- he, he there's a 40-minute set that he does for Drybar. He talks about being in the Air Force, tells a couple of different stories, tells a story about being at the Academy. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but 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 go and uh, go and find. It. I think I have that up at the Andrew Langer Show page on Facebook uh, as well. Uh, this is a rather inauspicious, uh, a dubious anniversary, I should say. Um, and I and, and September seventeenth, uh, nineteen seventy-eight. I was glued to the TV. I thought that this was uh, a fever dream of my youth. Um, but today marks the 40, what, 43rd anniversary of the Star Wars holiday special. The Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. love the fact that this star wars holiday special was filmed essentially with a video camera and with with vhs and not on film um but let me me, so that's obviously another millennium falcon but it's just so funny to sort of see han solo and chewbacca in that way clip from star wars star wars not star wars that's it, I'm turning back. I know your family's waiting. I know it's an important day. All right. Anyway, so um, uh, that, that, that the, 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 the gist of the Star Wars holiday special, if you've never seen it before, it's on YouTube. Again, 43 years ago today, never shown again. Um, uh, George Lucas said that if he, could, if he could destroy every copy of the Star Wars holiday special, he would. Uh, it was a variety show in the style of 70s variety shows. I mean, just literally a, 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 an acid-induced fever dream, I think is the best way to put it. Um, but we're talking, you know, B. Arthur, Art Carney, uh, Diane Carroll, uh, Harvey Corman, uh, the Jefferson Starship at the time. Um, I think, and all, the, and all the members of the cast of, of, of Star Wars uh, Luke, Leia, Chewbacca, etc. It begins with no joke, a 20 minute pantomime by Chewbacca's family, uh, Itchy, uh, his father, Lumpy, his son, and Mala, his wife, which I don't think they ever appear again in anything, um, and which they all grunt at each other and there's no subtitles, which is painful to watch. Uh, it is the introduction of the uh, uh, introduction of Boba Fett in a cartoon. Um, and you can see some of the elements in the Boba Fett cartoon that were that are then replicated in the Mandalorian, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, Diane Carroll, essentially itchy, watches a Diane Carroll-based holographic porn, which is really creepy. Uh, you get you get uh, B. Arthur singing a torch song in the Star Wars bar, and I'll tell you something, Bruce Valanche when he guessed it on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast talks extensively about B Arthur and about this thing. And again, that it was an acid induced fever dream. If you've never seen it, it is worth watching. Uh, if you haven't seen it since 1978, it is worth watching again. 
So anyway, happy, happy anniversary to the Star Wars holiday special. Uh, finally, I want to pull this up here um, because, uh, you know, as we as we get to this, uh, let me let me share the screen. Um, many of you know, uh, I am I am filling in for you can catch me on the radio back on the radio again. Well, let me let me let me say this real quick. Um, so uh, just so you all know, um, because I still haven't told much of the story, I did testify before the National Labor Relations Board this week on the ongoing situation with WBAL, uh, not to get into details, but, um, you know, it was I, I was glad to be able to testify on my issues and some of the other issues uh, that are out there. Uh, it is unfortunate that it has come to this, um, but then again, that's where we are. And, and, you know, there is a reason why, you know, if, if the uh, on-air member, on-air employees at WBAL are represented by a union, uh, there is a reason why federal laws exist. Uh, And, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, But moving onward and upward, as I've mentioned before, I am filling in for Derek Hunter next week on WCBM. You can catch me every day, Monday through Friday, including Thanksgiving Day, from 9 a.m. to 11.45 a.m. And and we're, we're really setting up. I mean, this is going to be a, a traditional Andrew Langer show. We're going to be talking about politics and policy. We're going to have good guests coming on. Already have Tony Schaefer and Nan Hayworth uh, and Governor Robert Ehrlich confirmed for next week. Um, got a couple of other special guests that I'm trying to bring up. Uh, we will be joined by Chef Andrew Gruel, who I've had on before. We're going to talk to him about some of the issues that are going on in terms of inflation, but also we're going to talk to him about cooking for the holidays, trying to get somebody from McCormick Spices on to, to talk as well. Uh, and then, you know, maybe some extra special guests and some unique things going on. And I'm going to try to get a text line created. They don't have uh, quite that, at least not that's going to be available to me. But I think I figured out a way to get a text line together so you can text the show while I'm on the air next week and frankly when I'm off the air. Uh, and, and I'll read those uh, those on the air as well. So tune in Monday through Friday. Next week, WCBM AM 680 in Baltimore. You can also catch me on uh, on um, online, uh, I believe on a variety of apps and also on your smart speakers. Uh, we definitely texted it on our, our Amazon uh, Echo systems. So uh, check us out uh, uh, there uh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 1145. Uh, I have, oh, if you haven't seen it, uh, go and check out my interview with Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends about his book. Uh, And if you haven't checked out my interview with Glenn DeVries, I played a little bit of it early on. uh, Please go and check that out as well. I am uh, Andrew Langer. Uh, This has been my uh, my weekly Wednesday show. I like doing these, as you know. Uh, Have a great week, everybody. Have fun and uh, stay safe.